The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club's discussion of The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins. I'm Dan Coyce, I'm Slate's culture editor, and I'm here in Slate's DC recording studio. Joining me here is Katie Waldman, who is Slate's words correspondent. Hi, Katie. Hey, Dan. And joining us from our New York studio is brand new Slate senior editor and brand new audio book club member, Laura Bennett. Hi, Laura. Hi, Dan. So as always with the audiobook club, we urge you to read the book first and listen to us after because we will be spoiling everything that happens in the book. In this particular, there are a lot of twists and turns that we will be discussing. We will gleefully be dissecting these twists and turns. So if you are a person who cares about spoilers, you should read the book now and then come back. If you are a person who doesn't, who just wants to know what actually happens in this book that everyone is reading, then go on ahead and listen. The Girl on the Train is a twisty British thriller about a woman's disappearance in a London suburb. It's told through scrambled chronology and three women's points of view. Those three women are, one, Rachel, an alcoholic divorcee who watches a certain happy couple through the window of her train every day as they stand in their back garden. Megan, the wife of that seemingly perfect happy couple. And Anna, the woman who replaced Rachel in her marriage a few years ago. When Megan disappears, Hawkins uses her three narrators, each of whom know different sides of the story and each of whom may be a little bit unreliable or a lot unreliable, to uncover what happened to her. So in our discussion today, I want to talk about the novel's construction and whether you guys found it ingenious or annoying. I want to talk about Hawkins' use of the alcoholic blackout as a plot device. And of course, because this is a murder mystery, I want to talk about the big reveal. Were you guys surprised by the murder and were you convinced by the scene? But first, let's talk about Rachel, who is at the center of this book and who is a complete fucking mess. She's miserable about her infertility. She is a drunk. She drove her husband into the arms of a, a hussy. She keeps barfing on a roommate's floor. She got <laughs> fired. She just takes the train into London every day just to keep up appearances, even though I don't even know what appearances she's keeping up because she drinks cans of gin and tonic on the way home. One of the arcs of this novel, it seems like it's supposed to be, is that we are supposed to dismiss her at first as pathetic and then see her sort of come into her own when she starts to find that she has something that compels her, i.e. investigating this disappearance. The question is, for both of you, is Rachel ever not pathetic? Silence. Silence. Um, You don't want to speak ill of a poor, (laughs) drunken, fictional character. Yeah. I think what's kind of interesting, or to revise downward our expectations a little bit, I think that there is movement. So she is definitely less pathetic at the end of the book. Great. But that does not absolve her from general patheticness. I don't think she rises above that. Like, is she good at anything? (laughs) Is there, I mean, is there something that we are supposed to admire about her besides the fact that she finally takes ownership of her memory and her past at the end? That's a great question. Is Rachel good at anything? No. That's interesting that you pointed out that arc that we're supposed to, you know, revise our feelings about Rachel, because if that's true, then I thought it was pretty ineffective and that Rachel was supremely unlikable and and she sort of never got less likable. And I thought that, I mean, like, you know, I think the likability debate is maybe a little bit tapped out, but I felt like the problem was less that she was unlikable and more that sort of the cycle was exhausting and repetitive and that her unlikability like wasn't that psychologically interesting. And the that... cycle, you meaning the constant cycle of her 
relapsing, exactly. drinking, mm-hmm. getting right. crazy, doing something stupid, waking up the next morning and trying to figure out what the hell she did. And then pledging that she would not drink again except for maybe this one can of gin and tonic right now. I mean, she did so many sort of petty things that seemed unnecessarily unlikable. Like, why did she need to lie about knowing Megan from the gallery? Uh, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves plot-wise. You know, she at one point kidnapped someone's baby in a way that seemed sort of <laughs> unacceptable. Slightly unlikable there. Yeah, yeah, a little unlikable. And I just felt like, but it did occur to me that this arc was quite possibly an authentic portrait of alcoholism. You know, the repetition, the helplessness, the tedium, the way your behavior sort of alienates and infuriates non-alcoholics who can't understand why you keep behaving so irrationally and self-destructively. Well, so then that suggests that maybe my perception of the intended arc of this book is maybe totally wrong, right? So maybe I'm putting on this book the arc that some other different version of this story might have had, where some kind of, you know, washed up detective finally gets her shit together and digs into the case. Uh, But maybe this book was never meant to be that. Maybe this book is really meant to be what happens if you take the washed up drunk detective of a typical mystery novel and they never get their shit together. They just continue to be a fuck up the whole entire time. They never stop drinking. They never get more interesting and they're not actually that good at being a detective. Like, so maybe is it sort of like a grand experiment in undercutting the tropes of the detective novel? Well, it just seems like a flaw that she is so defined by her alcoholism. Like other detectives, Sherlock Holmes is brilliant. He's got like a lot of things going on. He's not defined by his cocaine addiction. Right, right. (laughs) And the problem with Rachel is she seems so one-dimensional. Like I'm reaching for things that I can say about her that are not like she is enslaved to her drinking habit. And then, you know, the distance away from her addiction is something that we chart. But even at the very end, like, the weapon that she uses to save herself is a corkscrew. And I'm like, guys, (laughs) guys, you know, like, go a little bit outside of that comfort zone. You know, I read one of the Times reviews of this book last night. I found myself getting a little defensive of Rachel and of the book after having been so exhausted with her because there's this one moment when the reviewer says, it might as well have been wearing a sign that says unreliable narrator, which is true. And she's saying how tough it is to root for her, which I agree with. But then I sort of also felt like I got to a point where I no longer needed or wanted to root for her. And I was sort of relieved of the pressure to root for her. What I was rooting for was a satisfying ending that meted out justice as neatly as the book had meted out plot developments. You know, I wouldn't have been that disappointed if she got killed off in the end. I just wanted something big and exciting and sort of ideally surprising to happen. That's interesting. So in the end for you, the book basically had no central character. The central character was the disappearance and how that would eventually be solved. Right. Right. That's who you end up rooting for in a book like this. So, I mean, and it's true that it isn't a traditional mystery with a detective at the center. It's... Kind of a thriller, but really most of the thrills have already happened and we're sort of untangling or uncovering them. It's kind of a a memory novel, right? Because the hole at the center that we are in the dark about, as I guess all three of the other characters who are our point of view characters, is what happened the night that Megan disappeared to Rachel. We obviously want to know what happened to Megan. We want to know who abducted her or how she disappeared or whatever happened to her. But the real mystery that we keep being presented with is what happened to Rachel, who drank even more than usual that night, went to the town where her ex-husband and his wife and also Megan and her husband live and did 
something. She doesn't know what. She doesn't remember what. She has these flashes of memory. She knows that something happened in an underpass underneath the train tracks, and she has a memory of waking up at one point with there being blood all over her hand, and she has a head wound, and she remembers stumbling off the train with some dude. But she doesn't exactly remember anything, and so the hole at the center of the book is her trying to fill in those details. And as we said, she's not a detective. She make some stabs at it. She thinks about maybe getting hypnotized, but then doesn't because it's too expensive and it wouldn't work. She makes the supremely terrible decision that maybe going to therapy with the therapist who may or may not have been sleeping with Megan could help maybe like somehow that would magically help. She makes a bunch of other bad decisions too. But what did you guys think of that sort of being in the end, the mystery that we were invested in, not just what happened to Megan, but what happened to Rachel that night. Did you like that as a plot device? That's a hard question because, I mean, I thought it was like a pretty tiresome plot crutch that she was an alcoholic and that, you know, conveniently for this plot that, you know, needed to sort of stave off its revelations. I mean, we couldn't really know what had happened to her. And then they would return to her, these images would return to her as these sort of reverse premonitions. And we would wonder what they really meant. I thought it was kind of crutchy and kind of easy, but by the time I had finished the book, I felt like the most satisfying moments were these little premonitions she had, like the golf club with the chip that it takes out of the out of the wall. And just to explain a little bit, this is something that we're gonna. I don't want to give away the ending, but it's just it's this moment that she has been told. It has one interpretation by a man in her life, and then in the end, it's okay. We're spoiling this whole thing. Okay, we're spoiled. It's spoiled. Yeah, go All for right. It. So essentially, Tom, her ex-husband, has told her throughout her whole life that there's this one terribly embarrassing incident where she got drunk and was a mess and went after him with a golf club, and that it keeps returning to her, sort of the chip in the wall and the golf club, and she's humiliated by it. It's evidence of her own sort of insufficiency as a wife. And then, in and the also very... evidence that when she's in this blackout state, she is capable of the kinds of acts of violence that she never would have imagined exactly. herself to be capable of. And it seems sort of, you know, heavy-handed. But then, in the end, the golf club as a as a symbol is revised when we find out that Tom is actually much more violent and sinister. And, a, and more than we had ever known, and he's a liar, and he's been lying to all the women in his life about who he is and what he's capable of. And so we realized that he actually went after her with the golf club. And that's actually a pretty satisfying. So in the end, her blackouts were easy to sort, as a sort of plot device, but they ended up being pretty satisfying. I agree. I didn't mind the device of the blackout, and I also thought that they became pretty metaphorical, like in an interesting way. So a lot of the murdery stuff transpires in this underpass and the underpass is like the underworld and at one point Megan who's the murder victim is underneath and she hears the train going over her and it's like the actual world and she's already underground and she's buried alive and it's chilling and she's the living dead but that underpass is like the dark place that your memory can't reach and it's sort of like an emblem of the mystery of the entire book and I actually kind of liked the way the metaphor and the facts lined up like she had a literal blackout and there are all these black or blank spaces that the plot is sort of circling around so I don't know I thought it was not the worst of the book's offenses in terms of like being really on the nose and sort of thrillery yeah I really actually like the blackout as a device I mean maybe other mystery novels have done this exact thing but I have not read a book 
that uses this specific thing that does actually happen to people that maybe even has happened to some of us once in our college days, you know, as a way to introduce suspense into the story. There's plenty of artificial ways to introduce suspense into a story. And this book engages in plenty of those. It has unreliable narrators. It cuts away from scenes right when we would otherwise be about to get crucial information. It has characters withhold information for like no reason at all to us, the reader who theoretically should have access to the contents of their mind. Like it does all those things, which annoy me, but as a, an actual sort of hook to this narrative, I really liked that blackout and it gave me a lot to think about as the novel went on. It made me view a lot of things that turned out to be red herrings as plausible scenarios and that is fun as a reader like that dude on the train who like she meets who's also sort of tipsy and she remembers stumbling off the train with him like he was a plausible suspect in this murder for me for a really long way even though there's like nothing about him we even know all we know about him like is that he has red hair yes he's a red herring right that was oh jesus christ oh my god that's awesome (laughs) i didn't even get that i was too busy thinking of him as looking exactly like the poor Ministry of Magic official <laughs> that Ron polyjuices into in Deathly Hallows when they have to break into the Ministry of Magic, the guy with the mustache. I thought he looked just like that dude in my head. But I thought, oh, yeah, maybe that guy murdered her. But it turned out he didn't. But I liked that the, the device of the blackout allowed me to buy into those red-haired red herrings more than I maybe would have in a different book where it didn't have that sort of plausible sense of why everything was absent. And I like that there were certain sort of symbols and, you know, people and images and objects that were kind of fixed in her memory and that the story around them was what was revised overall based Mm -hmm. on what she was told and what she could remember. What did you guys think of our other two point of view characters? Rachel is pretty vivid, mostly because she occupies, I think, I would guess probably about half of the pages of the book are in her point of view. We also have Anna. And we also have Megan in the times before she disappears, uh, basically in flashback. I sort of blended them together in my head yeah. a little bit. Like... I thought they were super interchangeable. And I think I was slacking with you a little bit about this earlier, Laura, but like it was annoying to me that I couldn't really tell the female protagonists apart when they were talking. But me at the too. same time, I was thinking, oh, maybe this is deliberate. They're all each other's shadow selves. They're sleeping with the same men. They live in identically laid out houses. Like this must be some kind of intentional statement. But it was still annoying. I would have liked if they were more distinct. Yeah, it seemed like a missed opportunity to me. What about you, Laura? I agree. I mean, it was interesting because it made me think about, and we'll probably get to this, but it made me appreciate Gone Girl even more reading this book because it made me think about how jumping between different perspectives is such a hard feat to pull off. And that in this case, these women were so undifferentiated and that when you to really do a good job offering up different perspectives, they have to at least, they have to sound different, they have to different voices, and they have to at least sort of notice different things about the world mm. and that the women even had their sort of, even their metaphors were common. Like they kept, I remember several times in which several of them said, the train passed and the faceless people in the windows, like the underpass came up in Anna's perception also. And, uh, you know, the, we mentioned earlier, uh, you know, before we started recording that the sky was very ominous for all of them. And that that seemed to me like sort of a fatal flaw in the creation of these perspectives. That's what made me feel like this wasn't like a intentional device on her part. It just made me feel like she's like she just didn't put that much work into the different character voices and really thinking about these women. They each have their own concerns and they have different circumstances, but they don't really seem 
Anna and Megan particularly don't really seem to see the world that differently. They're both, it's like Anna is slightly more happy in her marriage right now, but seems like eventually she'll just like go back to being sort of the party girl she once was. And Megan already is like edgy and, and screwed up. And while I sort of appreciated that we had sort of this group of different fucked up women as our three narrators, those two particularly weren't fucked up in like interesting delineated ways. Right. Right. And also their concerns were really like the focus that the author chose to give them all jointly was really petty and limited and based on what you look like and what a good mother you are or a bad mother you are. It just like the subjectivity of these three women was not only way too alike, but also way too blinkered and sexist. Right. And I, I thought. feel like the book doled out defining one defining characteristic to each of them. So Rachel got her alcoholism, Megan got the death of her a baby a long time ago and sort of her promiscuity. And Anna got Evie, her boring little baby. And that otherwise they sounded exactly alike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at one point Megan said of the underpass, the smell of cold and damp always sends a shiver down my spine. And I was like why would it show him to shiver down your spine? Like you weren't clunked on the head with someone's keys in the <laughs> Bizarre. I agree that they all sort of have like their one delineating characteristic, but a lot of those revolve around kids. And I did think that the book had an, sort of an interesting relationship with kids. And each person has their own relationship, their own way that a kid works for them. So Anna has one, the boring baby, as you so touchingly refer to it, Flora. <laughs> Rachel can't have one, and that's sort of her like life tragedy that's what sort of instigates her whole her whole breakdown and megan accidentally killed one when she was younger and then she even dies pregnant with another and i sort of liked that this novel didn't give a shit about those kids really (laughs) like children were not actual humans in the world of this book but they're purely little plot devices to push things forward when they need to move forward and i sort of liked how totally cavalier the book was about using But at the same time, they're like these totally idealized abstractions. So like the thing that sends all these damaged women into their downward spirals is like their failures as mothers. So one can't conceive at all and that destroys her. And the other one has this incredible tragedy that's based on her allowing basically her daughter to drown. And they're racked with guilt over this and this destroys their lives. And then the third woman is completely obsessed with her domesticity and her child. And what if she hired a babysitter who was unsafe for her child? It just, they all seemed obsessed with kids in the abstract. And so it didn't feel like a cavalier treatment of children at all. It felt like, oh my gosh, another like motherhood obsession but without any actual children in the mix. Yes. (laughs) Children as objects about which these women still, for some reason, obsess, even though the children themselves have no personality whatsoever. (laughs) So you brought up Gone Girl, Laura, which is obviously a point of comparison here. It's a point of comparison that the publisher is very happy to make. It's a point of comparison in a big Wall Street Journal piece that ran shortly after this book was published. And, you know, for the last three years in the American book publishing industry have been basically a long stretch of books attempting to be the next Gone Girl, which has now sold like six million copies or some insane number. And so far, things are going okay for The Girl on the Train. Like, it's a number one New York Times bestseller as we record this. It's been on the list for a month and a half. It's selling tons of copies. People are super into it. And there are obvious connections, right? There's the multiple points of view. There's an unreliable narrator. And there 
there are a whole passel of sort of non-admirable female characters in this book, which it also shares with Gone Girl. Do you guys think this is the next Gone Girl? Do you think that despite your clear antipathy for this book, that there are things in this book that are going to hook into people the way Gone Girl has? This book is a different kind of satisfying than Gone Girl. No, I liked the ending of Gone Girl because it was disturbing. It was one big loose end, you know, in the form of this terrible twisted marriage that would most likely continue for many decades to come. But it still somehow felt like the only way this book could really end. And it somehow permitted you to find these characters even more twisted than you had throughout the book, especially with Nick, you know, sort of an anti-redemption story. And then whereas with Girl on the Train, it had to kill Tom off because there were no loose ends even Rachel gets supplied with a convenient pile of money from her mom. Every single Chekhov's gun explodes because this isn't really a book about moral complexity, you know, or about the complexity of human relationships. Instead, it sort of suggests that human relationships might be hiding their true nature, but that their true nature is sort of ultimately knowable and clear if you dig enough and you don't black out from gin and tonics. That in the end, even if you are no good at being a detective, the bad guy will be so bad that you guys will be able to ferret out that he was bad and did the murder. Exactly. Right. And, you know, if Girl on the Train is about sort of the unreliability of our own perspectives, you know, Gone Girl was in some ways the opposite. It was about, you know, the ways we perform our perspectives to the world since, you know, our true unvarnished private perspectives are so self-interested and cold that we could never show them to the world. So, you know, Girl on the Train is telling us that we can never really trust the things we perceive about the world. And Gone Girl is suggesting that, you know, you can never really trust the things I claim to perceive about the world, which is sort of more interesting to me. And you're totally right that the voice in Gone Girl is way richer than the disparate voices in that book. So we're talking about two books, each of which basically has three primary voices that we understand the story through. In this one, it's the three women in Gone Girl. It's Nick, and then it's fake Amy through her journals, and then it's real Amy through the monologue that starts about halfway through the book. And sorry, spoiler for Gone Girl. But those three voices are so vivid and so different from each other, especially when you consider that one of them is meant to be a sort of curdled, fake, cheery version of the other. They're really, really well drawn. And in this book, they're not. And that does suggest in the end that this isn't a book that is that interested in sort of the actual hidden things about someone's character, but instead is it has sort of determined that people's character is what it is and is unchangeable. Maybe you are a murderer. Maybe you are a drunk. Maybe you are a wife. Maybe you are a mom, but that's the thing you are, and you make your way through sort of the plot points of this book on your way toward the end, which I agree is not that. And is not as interesting of a thing to investigate. But here's another question about the place that this book goes, which is the end. You've given it away over the course of our discussion, Laura, that it's Tom who does it. Tom, who is Rachel's ex-husband, he marries Anna, he has an affair with Megan, he, uh, it turns out, is a lying jerk. We find out in like the last three pages he's been lying about his family and his army buddies, and he's just lying about everything. He's a monster. But so I get the impression that you guys did not find this solution to the puzzle satisfying, but tell me if I'm wrong. Oh, I actually did. Like, oh. I thought the I thought Tell the second the second half of the book was a lot better than the first, a lot swifter. I really liked how what seemed so fractured and disparate and impossible to reconcile and all these three voices suddenly like coalesced into one accelerating narrative and like I knew where it was going and I really liked watching it unfold towards the end even if it wasn't like a very intellectually rich experience. 
yeah, I liked that Tom was the villain, and I actually didn't suspect him until Rachel had that weird fear response to the memory of the golf club that mm-hmm. she supposedly she had, had fear been responses swinging. to everything, though. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> this is true. But I did not expect one to be attached to the golf club that she <laughs> was apparently swinging. So, yeah. So I you actually, bought it. You bought, bought it, it, and you were into it, and you were like, "Oh, this is a satisfying conclusion." Mm-hmm. What about you, Laura? Well, I also found it satisfying. But I thought, I mean, I think I marked down on page 200-something was when I was positive that it was Tom, and that's pretty far into the plot. But I felt like it was such an easy list to cross off because every time someone got sort of thrillery suspicion cast on them, like, his hands sure looked dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you knew they couldn't be the murderer and that Tom was sort of the boring black hole at the center of all these people suspecting each other. So it either had to be Tom or, like, Kathy. Who oh my god, roommate. what a book this would have been if it was Kathy. <laughs> I wish it nice was Kathy. large. Right. Right, exactly. I was so angry about you barfing on my carpet, I just went and murdered this woman you <laughs> it idealized. Went on spree. <laughs> <laughs> I did not love that it was Tom, not necessarily because of the choice of Tom, but just because I thought the whole last scene was so bad. Oh, so, bad. so I mean, it was just so monologue It really has, I mean, he might as well be like cackling and rubbing his hands together while he's... <laughs> While he's explaining the whole thing, he explains the whole thing. He explains everything that happened in the book to everyone. I'm going to read a little section of it because it drove me slightly batty, this section. This is on page 298. Literally, it's like the thriller version of the scene in a romantic comedy where the nerdy girl takes off her glasses and unties her hair and shakes her hair out and it turns out she's beautiful. This is the scene where Tom just suddenly turns evil. Tom gives a loud sigh. It's a relief, if I'm honest. He's talking to me, looking at me directly. You have no idea how exhausting it is coping with people like you. And fuck, I tried. I tried so hard to help you, to help both of you. You're both, I mean, I loved you both. I really did. But you can both be incredibly weak. And this is what we're like, oh, 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 we get it. Okay, he's the evil killer. Got it. Nailed it. And he monologues. And then there's, it's not exactly, like, there should be, I felt like, more of a sense in these scenes of what is going on between Rachel and Anna. And I don't get Anna's motivation for large portions of the sequence. Right. She's, like, not calling the police, but she doesn't seem to be fully on Tom's side either. Right. I mean, in the end, she does a thing that makes sense to her character, but she spends that whole scene being, like, nonsensical. And then also, here's maybe my stupidest problem with this book and with the ending of the book, is that it didn't really have anything to do with the train. Yeah, (laughs) right. I was so angry that the book in the end wasn't about the train at all, that there's no scene where she sees something again at the end of the book from the train, and she has to, like, rush off the train and deal with it. That is how this book should end. Rear window ends because he sees something out the window, and then he has to go deal with it, and then other people see things through there, whatever. This book needed shit to happen on the train, because otherwise you don't get to call a girl on the train. I think that is hilarious, because <laughs> because I agree so much, and because I spent so much of the book looking for meaning in the trains, yes! and like the way the book resists meaning in the trains is so funny. Like Rachel at one point says, I marked this down because it was exactly how I was feeling. Well, no, at one point she says, I like trains, and what's wrong with that? Trains are wonderful. Yes. That's not why you have to like trains for a more specific reason than that. <laughs> and, and I also feel like there are so many scenes where 
just gratuitously and then I heard the rumble of the train yep. or like in <laughs> Megan's old home it's by abandoned train tracks and right. you're supposed to pause and sort of gasp with wonder <laughs> like oh it all becomes clear there are train tracks there and in the same way there are like piles of stones and piles of clothes and other symbols just sort of interspersed throughout and I'm like all right I got that that's this is a symbol but what are you telling me right with and any at, of this? at one other point she says in the morning I take the 804 and in the evening I come back on the 556. That's my train. It's the one I take. That's the way it is. And that was just sort of the way the train was presented throughout the entire plot. Like, here's a train. That's just what you're going to have to look at. Uh, I love, I, oh my God, that sentence you read. Who doesn't love trains? <laughs> it's like it's It really is like she wrote, I love trains. TK, TK, later put in reason I love trains. But then she just never got back to that scene to like fix that. I mean, maybe the whole book is about disembarking from the train. So you start with the train and then the actual action has to happen without a train in sight because it is no good to be a spectator. You have to participate in life, which means staying in one place. I have no idea. I think that is what we were supposed to think about the train. And, you know, it's the idea of, like, living a lie, sort of simulating a life that you aren't really living by going back and forth. And that was sort of momentarily interesting that she's pretending to continue to have this job by going on the train. And it was a convenient device for coincidental run-ins with the redhead. Mm -hmm. They were always trapped in this space together. Essay in the LA Review of Books that digs into this a little bit and tries to make a case, I think, for the act of viewing from through the train window and the act of viewing as it works in this novel. And it's by uh, Kim Kankowitz. uh, And it came out in January, right around the time this book came out. It makes a very explicit comparison between Girl on the Train and Rear Window. And it argues that this novel sort of undercuts the male gaze in an interesting way by allowing its female characters to see things in ways that thrillers often do not. Did you guys read this piece? What Did you guys buy this argument about this book? I thought it was persuasive, like the notion that Rachel succeeds when she is able to take ownership of her own vision and say the account of of things that I finally remember is accurate and I'm not going to let this man tell me what I should see or who I am and I'm not going to let how I seem to him define me. At the same time, I didn't think that the piece really took into account how confusing the relationship between observation and participation is in this book in that like when Rachel is observing Jeff and Jason or Megan and Scott from the train window. She's not just being this sort of passive fly on the wall. She wants to insert herself. Like she wants to interpose herself into their life and be involved and somehow, you know, live out her fantasies of romantic fulfillment through Scott. And so I thought that maybe the line between watching and and doing is a little bit muddier in the book than the article gives it credit for. I thought I agree that it was a piece that made a lot of perceptive points about how sort of sensitive Rachel is to being watched and how the women are also obsessed with how men are perceiving them in comparison with each other. But I felt like the idea that she somehow reclaims her own perspective at the end was giving the book way too much sort of feminist credit. The only way she could take control of her own life was to kill the man she was obsessed with. Like, what kind of a message is that? That she had to be wiped <laughs> off the face of the earth. <laughs> and I also felt like 
the fact that they were all so obsessed with being watched by men was sort of really just a plot device to raise our hackles about literally everything that happened in the book. Well, and he's not the only man she becomes obsessed with. I mean, one thing that I did like about her character as it was drawn in this book is that you see little touches of her like total willingness to fall under the sway of like any dude who is nice to her for like even a second. Like we haven't even really talked about Kamal, the therapist Mm -hmm. who she goes to inexplicably, but like the scenes where she just sort of decides that, Oh, he must be okay because he listens to her or when she even like, even when she's getting questioned by the cops and like the female cop just rubs her the wrong way, but the male cop seems so nice and he must Mm -hmm. really be on her side. And he's not wearing a ring. That's like the first thing she notices. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess there are ways in which you can view those as like annoying quirks of a writer but i also found them as character notes on a deeply insecure totally screwed up woman at the center of this book i found them interesting and well observed character notes on that actual character does this book pass the bechdel test i was just thinking that all of the women are so man crazy like every single male character that is introduced is seen as a like a romantic prospect like the therapist the Scott and the police officer. Like, are there any women who are talking to each other about things that are not men? I think Rachel and Kathy sometimes talk to each other about, about barfing. Vomit. Yeah. Oh. About barfing. Okay. Yeah. Right. And about her about job drinking. and how she doesn't have a job and about drinking. Yeah. Okay. If you think of alcohol as the real man in Rachel's life, then no, <laughs> this book does not pass the Bechdel test. Yeah. All right. right. So, I, yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, just that I, I mean, I was just going to say that I agree with you that one of the most interesting and sort of persuasive and things about Rachel as, as a character was the way she talked about transference, which is this mm-hmm. term from therapy that comes up. She was transferring onto everybody, like every single man for like sort of she slotted into this sad little role in her life. And that was kind of poignant and interesting as like a character trait. All right, so uh, in the end, would you guys recommend this? Not recommend it? What do you guys think? Katie, you seem more mixed than Laura, but I'm interested in what you guys think. I think that if you are on a train and the alternatives are either read this book or creepily spy out the window on like perfectly happy or not married couples, read the book. But if you have a better book, maybe read that. If that's the choice, man, I would say stare out the window. <laughs> what about you, Laura? I didn't love the book overall, but do I recommend it? I sort of do in that I was so helplessly engrossed by it, even while finding it to be sort of dopey, that it was a you know a pleasurable experience to read. And that there was like sort of relieving myself of the obligation to find every sentence sort of like inspiring and interesting and complicated and just to like follow the plot. I mean, that's an experience that's worth having. I don't know. I felt like it mostly made me like think of better livelier thrillers that also have a real handle on character. I mean, like Gillian Flynn or like, I mean, it made me want to just go read a bunch of Patricia Highsmith, basically. Like, it felt like those were the kinds of books that this wants to be. But Patricia Highsmith is way more elegant of a thinker and a writer than Paula Hawkins is. Um, All right. Well, thank you guys for joining me for this discussion of The Girl on the Train. I hope that we have successfully um, peed all over the excitement of everyone (laughs) on all 600,000 people who've bought and enjoyed this book. But I agree with you guys that like as a plot engine, chugga, 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 Mm -hmm. chugga, 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 it it does often work. Like I I was never bored reading this book, but it it just bothered me at times that it wasn't better than it could have been. But thank you guys for joining me for this discussion. And I'm so glad to have you both here to talk about it with me. 
So starting next month, I will stop being the host of the audiobook club and I will start being just one of the guests on the audiobook club. Uh, and the esteemed Katie Waldman is taking over the ABC. So today I'm going to let her go ahead and take over our closing credits. Take it away, Katie. All right. Thanks, Dan. And we will miss your hosting dazzling brilliance. But let me do my best with these program notes. So if you blow up, you're going to be replaced. Instantly. I will. I'll be on the tracks. Yeah. Okay. Our next audiobook club selection is How to Be Both, Ali Smith's much-praised, super virtuosic and fun dual-track novel about a Renaissance painter whose life becomes entwined with a contemporary woman's. Read it and join us for our discussion on April 10th. The homepage for the Slate book review is slate.com books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the audiobook club at slate.com abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Audiobook Club is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. Panoply! Woo! For Dan Coyce and Laura Bennett, I'm Katie Baldwin. Thanks for listening.